0: Hey everybody, so tomorrow night begins the festival of Sukkot. And so this episode is the last of the three fall festival special episodes that we have planned for this year. Because Sukkot will be in progress next week, and because of the load that I already have on me in areas of teaching, logistics, administration for our local community Sukkot, there's not going to be a new episode next week. The 'er Chai experiment will return on October 15th, with the remainder of Leviticus chapter 6 through chapter 7. I pray that your festival is blessed and that we will see you, idiomatically speaking, in two weeks. I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deir Shachai, as we seek life. Der Shai experiment special. Hey everybody, welcome to the De'er Chai Experiment, the show where we gather all that the Bible has to say on a subject to create a fuller understanding of what exactly Scripture has to say on any particular subject. This week we are looking at the holiday of Sukkot. And this is a holiday that I have never created a full teaching for up to this point. Sukkot, for me and my family, it's been our family vacation since we've begun to celebrate it, and so there was never any need for me to create a teaching on it. Most years, we would simply go somewhere else, and I would let others teach on the subject. But this year, some things have changed. Have you noticed? Well, if you haven't noticed, you're not really paying attention. The world has changed, but this year it has changed for us as well. This year, my local community is hosting our very first community-wide Sukkot, and so this year's Sukkot is not a vacation for myself and my family, but rather it's a continuation of the ministry that we find ourselves participating in. So if you think of us during this week, please say a prayer for us. The Festival of Sukkot is one of the many festivals that we read of in Leviticus 23, and it is one that is so packed full of meaning that it would take much longer than a single episode to fully flesh out everything that's contained in this holiday. And I simply don't have the time to prepare a series of teachings on the holiday this year, because in case you hadn't heard, I'm hosting a Sukkot, which, uh, which requires a lot of planning and a lot of time out of my schedule. But the fact of the matter is, there's, there's really too much to cover. So what is Sukkot? What does it represent, and what does it mean for us? Well, that's what we're going to cover today, we're going to read a passage regarding Sukkot, but the passage that we're going to lead off with is not one of the usual Sukkot passages that's read during this holiday. This passage, it contains a few interesting tidbits that I want to begin the lesson with, and then we can use this passage to then jump to other passages that deal with this most excellent festival season. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, chapter 8, and let's read the entire chapter together. Nehemiah, chapter 8. And when the seventh new moon came, the children of Israel were in their cities, and all of the people gathered together as one man in the open space that was in front of the water gate. And they spoke to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the Torah of Moshe, which Adonai had commanded Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the Torah before the assembly of both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it in the open space in front of the water gate, from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people listened to the book of the Torah. And Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they made for the purpose. And beside him, on his right, stood Maritia and Shema, and Aniah and Uriah, and Hilkiah and Maaseah. And on his left stood Pedaiah and Mashael, and Malkiah and Hashun and Hashbadana, Zachariah, and Meshelam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed Adonai the great Elohim, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped Hashem with faces to the ground. And Ezra blessed Hashem the great Elohim, and then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped Hashem with faces to the ground. And Yeshua and Bani, Shereviah Yamin, Akuv, Shabbatai, Hodaya, Maaseya, Kalita. Azariah, Yozabad, Hana, Paliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the Torah while the people were in their place. And they read from the book of the Torah of Elohim, translating to give the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and all the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is set apart to Hashem your Elohim. Do not mourn or weep, For all the people wept when they heard the words of the Torah. Then he said to them, Go, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom none is prepared. For this day is set apart to Hashem. Do not be sad, for the joy of Hashem is your strength. And the Levites were silencing all the people, saying, Hush, for the day is set apart. Do not be sad. And all the people went to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make a great rejoicing, because they understood the words that were made known to them. And on the second day the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the Torah. And they found written in the Torah which Hashem had commanded by Moshe that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the festival of the seventh new moon, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and branches of leafy trees, to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house and in their courtyards and in the courtyards of the house of Elohim and in the open space of the water gate and in the open space of the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had come back from captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Yeshua, the son of noon, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the Torah of Elohim, and they performed the festival seven days. And on the eighth day, there was an assembly according to the right ruling. The book of Nehemiah, as we understand it now, is actually, in the original scrolls, was one of two books that were combined together. Both the books of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah were combined together in one scroll. And these scrolls, they coincide with each other. And they occur nearly a thousand years after the time of Moses in the Torah. Uh, perhaps even more. The book tells the story of Judah as they're returning from their captivity in Persia. They had been taken to captivity in Babylon. Babylon had been defeated by Persia. And Persia had now sent Israel back into the land. And they'd been sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. Well, when Judah returned to the land, they were having problems getting planted in the midst of the enemies that surrounded them. And so Nehemiah, a cupbearer for the king of Persia, he asks for favor from the king. And the king gives Nehemiah favor, and he sends him home to be the governor of Judah. And the king pays then to have the temple of Hashem rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah travels back to Jerusalem, and while under threat from bandits, they end up rebuilding the walls of the city in only 52 days. The men who were working on the walls, they worked with trowels in one hand and swords in the other as they worked, actively defending themselves from aggressors while working to build the fortifications that would then protect them from future attacks. With the walls rebuilt, the people rest and they gather on the first day of the seventh month on Yom Teruah to read the Torah of Moses together. And as the reading proceeds, the people recognize their own failures to keep the covenant, the sins of their fathers, as Nehemiah opens his prayers with in the book of the first chapter. But the day is a festival, and so the Levites, they run through the crowd, commanding everyone to quiet down and to celebrate and to rejoice, for the day is a celebration to Hashem. And so they celebrate. And as the month proceeds, they read about this upcoming festival of Sukkot, and they decide that they should begin to keep this festival. And here, nestled in Nehemiah, we find a few gems that are worth digging for, in my opinion. Now, one of the traditions that has come to represent Sukkot is the waving of something that is called the lulav. A lulav is a bundle of four species of plants that are spoken of in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, verse 39 through 41. On the fifteenth day of the seventh new moon, when you gather in the fruit of the land, celebrate the festival of Hashem for seven days. On the first day is a rest, and on the eighth day a rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of good trees, branches of palm trees, twigs of leafy trees, and willows of the stream, and shall rejoice before Hashem your Elohim for seven days. And you shall celebrate it as a festival to Hashem for seven days in the year, a law forever in your generations. Celebrate it in the seventh new moon. Four species were to be gathered for creating these sukkahs. The fruit of a good tree branches of palm trees, the twigs or boughs of leafy trees, and the willows of the stream. Now in Judaism, in the Talmud, they solidified these species down to just four. The palm, the willow, those are easy. For leafy trees, they chose the myrtle tree, and we actually see the myrtle referenced in the book of Nehemia as one of the trees that was gathered. And for the fruit of the good tree, they chose the etrog, or the citron. Now, when I first heard this, I thought to myself, what in the world is an etrog? Well, it turns out that an etrog is a citrus-type fruit that's native to China. Now, how in the world did this fruit become the fruit of the good trees that is re- referenced in Leviticus 23? Well, the answer to that question is too long for this podcast, but there's a book that's been written by Ph.D. and Rabbi David Zed Moster. That goes into the history of how this odd and distant fruit came to be accepted as the fruit that is referenced in Leviticus 23. The question that I had when I discovered this was, well, where is this in the Bible? And so I looked for it, and I was unable to find, and you would be unable to find, an etrog or citron referenced by name anywhere in the Bible at all. But the four species are referenced one other time in connection to Sukkot one other time, aside from Leviticus 23. And guess what? In that other place, I believe the fruit of the good tree is named. And that other place is right here in Nehemiah 8. Verses 14-15 through says, And they found written in the Torah, which Hashem had commanded by Moshe, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the festival in the seventh new moon. And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and the branches of leafy trees, to make booths, as it is written. Myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees, such as the willow of Leviticus 23. But there is that one difference. In this list, there is no fruit of a good tree that's listed as there is in Leviticus 23. Instead, it says that there are the branches of the olive and the wild olive. My question is this. Is it possible that instead of using an etrog, this Chinese fruit, to celebrate a Hebrew holiday, is it not more likely that the good tree that's referenced in Leviticus is the olive tree? A tree that's native to Israel, one that's a huge part of biblical symbology, and one that's useful in so many ways. Fruit, oil, wood, etc. The tree, every part of the tree is useful. Now, I may be barking up the wrong tree, pun intended, but the Etrog, it never sat well with me. The olive tree, in my opinion, fits the holiday better, and it's native to the land and it has scriptural support, unlike the etrog. Regardless, I'm not going to condemn anyone who uses a citron or an etrog for their lulav, and neither should you. Moving on in the chapter, there is one other controversy that has risen up that I would like to address. Now, this particular controversy has nothing to do with Sukkot, but rather we find evidence in this chapter of Nehemiah 8 to support one side of this controversy over all others. And the controversy is none other than the Hebrew name of our Savior. Now those who know me know that I don't put a lot of stock in there being anything of great value to us spiritually if we say the name correctly versus if we say the name incorrectly. I still use the name Jesus from time to time depending on the setting, and it was the name of Jesus that I was saved through. Over time, however, I came to realize that the name of Jesus is an Anglicization of a Latinization of a Greekization of an Aramaicization of a Hebrew name. There's no problem with saying the name Jesus, but there are some very bad takes out there on what the Hebrew name of our Savior actually was. Now, one thing that we can all agree on is that the name of our Savior is a derivative of the name Joshua from the Torah and then later. And in the Hebrew, the name Joshua is Yehoshua. And so many will insist that this is the name of the Messiah in Hebrew. Unfortunately, for those who hold this view, there is is ample evidence to suggest otherwise. During the Babylonian captivity, we have ample evidence that the long Hebrew names of old, Avraham, Yoshtayahu, Yeremiyahu, etc., were shortened and became easier to pronounce. And we see that reflected very specifically in this chapter in verse 17. And the entire assembly of those who had come back from captivity, they made booths and sat under the booths, for since the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, until the day of the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. Who is Yeshua, the son of Nun? Well, it's none other than Joshua from the Torah, Moses' servant and successor. And here in Nehemiah we catch a glimpse of that shortening of the longer Hebrew names of old. Because in the Hebrew, the name written here is not Yehoshua, Joshua, but instead it is Yeshua. Yeshua, the son of Nun. But wait, but wait, his name was Yehoshua. Sure, but in Babylon, many things were changed. And when Judah came out, Yehoshua had changed to Yeshua. And that's why I believe the name of the Messiah is Yeshua and not Yehoshua or any of the other options that are available. But again, regardless of how you pronounce the name, it doesn't really matter. Saying the name of our Savior or of our God is not a summoning spell. You don't have to get it just right or they won't listen to you. That is a corrupt idea that has no basis in scripture. Anyway, that's two high horses for the day, so now I'm going to get off of those and let's continue on with the festival of Sukkot. So Sukkot is a holiday in which the people of God were told to take seven days out of their year and to move out of their homes and into temporary housing, known as Sukkah. What is the purpose of this festival, if we look to scripture? Well, according to Leviticus 23, we find this as the reasoning that was given, verses 42 through 43. Dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native born in Israel dwell in booths, so that your generations know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim, Egypt. I am Hashem, your Elohim. Sukkot is to be a memorial celebration of what? Of the Exodus. In Exodus, as Israel was leaving Egypt, the very first place that they stopped was a place named Sukkot. Exodus 12:37 And the children of Israel set out from Ramses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot besides the little ones. Okay, so Israel went from Ramses to Sukkot, and they stayed in Sukkot, the plural form of the word Sukkah, which is a temporary dwelling. Now this act of living in a Sukkah is an act of remembrance of the Exodus. Hashem caused his people to dwell in temporary dwellings while running from the Egyptians. He became their only shelter during this time. And from here, we can extrapolate the following idea that is repeated all throughout the Psalms. Hashem is our shelter in times of trial. Psalm twenty-seven, five: For in the day of evil he hides me in his booth. This is the word sukkah that's used in this verse. In the covering of his tent he hides me. On a rock he raises me up. Or Psalm 31, 19-20, How great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those fearing you, which you have prepared for those taking refuge in you, in the sight of the sons of men! In the secrecy of your presence you shall hide them from the plots of man. You shelter them in a booth, again the word sukkah, from the strife of tongues. Psalm 32, 6-8, through 8, Therefore let every lovingly committed one pray to you while you might be found. Even in a flood of great waters, they would not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from distress. You surround me with songs of salvation. Selah. Or Psalm 91, 1-4. through He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, who abides under the shadow of the Almighty. He is saying of Adonai, my refuge and my stronghold, my God in whom I trust. For he delivers you from the snare of the trapper, from the destructive pestilence. He covers you with his feathers, and under his wings you take refuge. His truth is a shield and armor. And so many more passages speak using this imagery. And it's this idea, the idea of God being our shelter, and not our homes. It is God being our security, and not our jobs. It is a walking out of the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is the primary ideal behind the festival of Sukkot, trusting in Hashem as our shelter. Now another idea that's encapsulated in the festival of Sukkot is that of walking out in practice of joy. Deuteronomy 16:12 through 15 And you shall remember that you were a slave in Mitzrayim, and you shall guard to do these laws. Perform the festival of Sukkot for seven days after the airing gathering from the threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your festival, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. For seven days you shall celebrate to Hashem your Elohim in the place which Hashem chooses, because Hashem your Elohim does bless you in all your increase and in all the work of your hands, and you shall be only rejoicing." Sukkot is a festival of freedom. We were slaves in Egypt, and so during Sukkot, everyone is to have a break in order to celebrate. And in verse 12, we read that your sons and your daughters and your servants and the Levites and the ger and the orphan and the widow, everyone is to celebrate, and there shall be only rejoicing. Everyone is to be allowed to participate. No one should be oppressed or kept from participating at this time of year. In fact, no one should be oppressed at all. That's the point of Sukkot. Freedom has been achieved for the people of God. No longer is anyone a slave as they were in Egypt. Everyone is free under this new master of Hashem. Now, these two ideals, they're the base ideals of Sukkot. God is our shelter and we are free now because of him. But the ideals of Sukkot don't end there. One of the traditional readings for Sukkot is the book of Ecclesiastes, and if we read this book and reflect on the ideas of Sukkot, we'll find that the two complement each other in amazing ways. For Sukkot speaks to the temporary nature of our existence in this world, the impermanence of all things, and it teaches us that we should not hold too tightly to the trappings of our lives. And Ecclesiastes speaks very clearly on this point. Ecclesiastes one verse one through nine The words of Koholet, the son of David, King in Jerusalem, Futility, futility, says Koholet. Futility, futility, all is futile. What does a man gain from all his labor which he toils under the sun? A generation passes away, and a generation comes, but the earth stands for ever. The sun also rises, and the sun sets, and hurries back to the place where it rose going to the south and turning around to the north, turning, turning, and on its rounds the wind returns. All the rivers run into the seas, yet the sea never overflows. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All matters are wearisome. No one is able to speak of it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what shall be, and what has been done is what shall be done, and there is no new matter under the sun. According to Kohelet, the preacher from here, the convener, the one who calls the assembly, the cyclical nature of life and the short lives of man, they all point to the impermanence of our world. Later in the book, the wa- author waxes eloquent about this. In Ecclesiastes 9, 7-10, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a glad heart, for Elohim has already approved your works. Let your garments be white at all times, and let your head lack no oil. See life with the wife whom you love, the days of your futile life which he has given you under the sun, all your days of futility. For that is your share in life, and in your toil which you have labored under the sun. All that your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. The fact is, is that our world is impermanent and so we might as well enjoy what we do have while we have it and that too is part of Sukkot for we just read in Deuteronomy we are to be joyful in our celebration we are to live in the impermanent and celebrate we're to embrace our own feudal temporary nature in this state because this state of living is one that will one day end I mean, sure, we love the things of this life, but they will go away. We love the trappings of our lives, but they will fade. And Sukkot teaches us. It teaches us the one thing that is worth doing. The end of the matter, as Koholet says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, at the end of the chapter, verse 13 through 14, let us hear the conclusion of the entire matter. Fear Elohim and guard his commands, for this applies to all mankind. For Elohim shall bring every work into right ruling, including all that is hidden, whether good or whether evil. The lesson of impermanence is to teach us of what is truly important, loving and fearing God and keeping His commands. Because we are impermanent, and in the end, we will face His judgment. And so Sukkot points us forward to the justice of God, freedom that is found in God, and the fact that God is our shelter. And each of these ideas, they point us to Yeshua, the Messiah who came to give us freedom, the one who demonstrated just how temporary this life is, the one who dwelt in the shelter of the wings of God and obeyed even unto death, the one who went before the judgment of man and gave up this temporary existence, because he knew of the because he knew of the permanent existence that is yet to come. The one who came down and tabernacled with us. John one fourteen. And the word became flesh, and it pitched his tent among us, and we saw his honor, honor as of an only brought forth of a father, complete in favor and truth. Yeshua came to earth, and he pitched his tent right alongside all of ours, and he tabernacled among us. And so it is that when Sukkot arrived, so too did the Son of God who dwelt among men. And this is the season of our joy. It is because during this season that the one who came to set us free also came and dwelt among us. Now there is some disagreement to the idea that I am about to present, but there is a ton of evidence that I have found to support it. And the idea is that Yeshua was not born on December 25th, but rather that he was born at Sukkot. And the place that he was laid was not a barn, but rather a very real sukkah that was housing animals as they were used for in the ancient Near East. When Jacob returned from Aram in Genesis, after he leaves Esau and he goes his own way, we read of this of Jacob. Genesis thirty-three seventeen, And Yaakov set out to Sukkot, and he built himself a house, and he made booths, or sukkah, for his livestock. That is why the name of the place is called Sukkot. Sukkot were shelters that were primarily made for animals. And I believe that our Messiah fulfilled the Torah so completely that he was born in a sukkah that housed animals as in Genesis 33 at the time of Sukkot, the time of our celebration of freedom with God as his only shelter into a body of impermanence in a place of impermanence. Now, as I said, there's ample evidence to support this view, and I have extrapolated it some, but if you've never encountered this idea before, if you have never looked at the evidence for yourself, I highly recommend that you do. Now, there are others who make the claim that Yeshua was born at Passover at the Feast of Trumpets, and they all provide some compelling evidence as well. But for myself and my family, we celebrate the birth of our Messiah, the advent of the season of our freedom and Messiah, at this time of the season of our joy. And the ideals of Sukkot, they don't end here. The fall feasts, they tell a story of future events. Not events past, but future events. Colossians 2, 16-17 says, Let no one therefore judge you in eating or drinking or in respect to a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of what is to come. But the body is of Messiah. All of the festivals, they're shadows of not things that are past. Paul clearly states that they are shadows of things that are yet to come in the future. Yom Trua speaks of the return of the Messiah, the king of Revelation 19, who will return on a white horse to defeat the enemy of this world. Then we read of the marriage supper of the Lamb at a time of judgment on those who stood against the body of Messiah, the church. And the one who sided with the enemy is then cast into a pit – on Yom Kippur, they are sent into the wilderness. And then comes the millennial reign with our Messiah, the first resurrection, living with him in his kingdom here on earth. And with all that we read in scripture of this time, there is only ever one of the festivals that's mentioned by name that will be celebrated in this millennial kingdom. Zechariah fourteen sixteen through twenty one. And it shall be that all who are left from all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to bow themselves to the king, Hashem of hosts, and to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. And it shall be that if any one of the clans of the earth does not come up to Jerusalem to bow himself to the king, Hashem of hosts, on them there is to be no rain. And if the clan of Mitzrayim does not come up and enter in, then there is no rain, On them is the plague with which Hashem plagues the nations who do not come up to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. This is the punishment of Mitzrayim, and the punishment of all the nations that do not come to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. In that day holy to Hashem shall be engraved on the bells of the horses, and the pots in the house of Hashem shall be like the bulls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be set apart to Hashem of hosts. And all those who sacrifice shall come and take them and cook in them, and there shall no longer be a merchant in the house of Hashem of hosts in that day. Sukkot is the one festival that we read of being kept in what we call the Millennial Kingdom. Perhaps a better term would be the Messianic Kingdom. And Sukkot will not only be a festival that's only for the Jews, or only for Israel, or only for believers, or only for Hebrews. Sukkot is a festival for all nations, and those nations who do not make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to pay homage and tribute to the king, they will be punished. Now there's more that could be said about this amazing festival. I could get into how every seven years the book of Deuteronomy is to be read during the festival of Sukkot, how Solomon dedicated the first temple at the time of Sukkot, how Jeroboam changed the festival of Sukkot and moved it to the eighth month to prevent his people from attending Sukkot in the south. How Hanukkah is a delayed Sukkot that the Maccabees celebrated because they had missed Sukkot earlier in the year of their victory because of the battles that had taken place. How Paul speaks of our momentary affliction and relates our dwelling to this flesh to dwelling in tents. And on and on and on. There's so many ideals packed into this festival of Sukkot. But there is one more thing that I would like to highlight before I finish this lesson. Added on to the end of Sukkot is an eighth day celebration that's not technically part of Sukkot. It is the closing of the festival, but it is separated out. And one thing that we're going to look at soon in the upcoming chapters of Leviticus is the idea that the eighth day all throughout scripture represents a new beginning, a elevation of sorts. Traditionally, this is taken on the cast of what's called the Simchat Torah services, the joy of the Torah. And it's at this time that the Torah scroll is rolled back to its beginning and a new year Torah cycle is begun. For many of us, the eighth day is it's an expendable day. We travel home early, we spend the eighth day at home in preparation for work resuming the next day. We leave early because we're tired of living outside in a tent, especially when it gets cold or rainy. But the eighth day is not a day to be discarded. The eighth day is the greatest day of the festival of Sukkot. John 7.37 says this about the eighth day. And on the last day, the great day of the festival, Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and let him who believes in me drink. The last day, the great day of the festival of Sukkot. It was on this day in the first century when a great water libation ceremony would take place. Dancing and joyous celebration, it would go on throughout the night. Everyone celebrated the most on the eighth day. Why? Well, it was it's because the eighth day represents the true new beginning that awaits us in the new creation. After the seven days of the millennial kingdom, there's the last great day, and on that day, New creation is realized on this earth. Heaven and earth join together fully, once again, better than it was in the garden. Because at this time, not only has creation returned to its original state, but this time it is inhabited by not just one man and woman, but by multitudes upon multitudes of Adams and Eves that have learned the lesson of Ecclesiastes. Fear God, keep his commands, for this is the end of the matter. And it applies to all mankind. And this is Sukkot in a nutshell. As I stated at the beginning, there is simply too much to go over for this holiday. I've really only just touched on the beginnings of the ideals of Sukkot, the low-hanging fruit, as it were. And I pray that you now appreciate just how robust the holiday of Sukkot is. It is the season of our joy. It is the celebration of our freedom and salvation. It is the advent of our Redeemer. It is the reminder that everything that we own is temporary. And so we find our shelter in the one thing of permanence. And if you learn only these things from the festival of Sukkot, you will be well on your way to walking the path of life as you continue to Deir chai. Seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.